If you've been listening to the show, you know I've been diving into the direct care business model for physicians as a way to rebuild our American healthcare system and end the burnout epidemic. If you're working with us as a planning client, we can help you get clarity on what it takes to get there, keep you accountable, and even give you a bunch of examples of how well this has worked for others. But I know many of you will need more than it. You may need support doing things you've never had to do before, like business planning or marketing or even IT. And I'm sure you could probably use a part. That's what my friends at Freedom Health Works can do for you. They're the complete direct primary care solution for physicians that want to buck the system. They can help you set up and run your own practice with easy financing and support you with the business strategy, hiring guidance, technology setup, client acquisition, and even your website. If you're curious to learn more about them, hit pause, grab your phone right now and save this number. 317-804-1203. That's 317-804-1203. We've also had their CEO on our May 2nd episode one of their current clients on our June 13th episode and a client of ours who just started working with them on our show that aired on July 18th. Make sure and give those shows a listen if you're curious, but if you want to get some questions answered directly, give them a call. They're a great team. And once again, find out more at 317-804-1203 and make sure to tell my you. Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. Hey, this is Pablo, the producer of uh, the show again, and I hope you really enjoyed that DIY exercise of examining your values. And while Daniel is still away doing some strategic planning with his team, we thought that it'd be a really good time to resurface this podcast as an update on the physician loans, which as you may or may not know, mortgage rates have recently dropped. So it's normal to assume that some of you are going to be in the market for a home now that uh, these rates are dropping and maybe you're even investing in a home or, you know, a lot of people are back in the housing market. So we wanted to release this episode. It was from nine months ago, but we have cut out all the non-topical things that were happening nine months ago. And this really serves as an update on how the physician mortgage has changed, the considerations around it, 
that are new these days after post-COVID and the different ways of thinking about should you invest in a home? Should you invest in rental properties? Should you rent? Should you buy? What kind of house do you need? All based around the type of financing that you as a doctor can get. Enjoy. I'm excited. We're going we're gonna to dig into home buying and, and the market and talk a lot about what's going on there. Rich is a rock star in the world of mortgage loan lending and works with Truist, which was SunTrust, Truist Bank, and primarily works with physician loans. And he knows all there is to know about physician loans and has lots of experience working in that area. So we're going to dig into all that. And I'm excited to kind of go through all that sort of stuff. And real quick, I got to make a real quick disclaimer. I work for Truist, but these thoughts and ideas are my own. They're not, Truist is not. This is not advice. Yes, exactly. This is for educational purposes only. Right. Consult your advisor, everybody for advice. Yeah, consult Daniel. <laughs> yes, if you work with us. Yeah. If you don't, then start working with us or <laughs> find your other advisors. Yes, and we'll circle back to some scenarios too because really it depends on your situation and the numbers can skew even more in certain situations. So, but yeah, so mortgage rates have gone way up on pretty much everything from like, whether it's a 30 year, an arm or 15 year, pretty much all the products, the rates have gone up a lot. There's not like a way around that. And the problem with it is it's like prices have not gone down. Like theoretically they potentially should. Cause like you were saying with the buying power in theory, if buying power goes down, prices should theoretically go down on houses, but they haven't because the inventory is so low. So that's kind of a weird situation. It's like you're paying the same price as before, but paying a right. way higher interest rate. Right. That just crunches you even more. So it's kind of a weird market. Is there any changes around like the arm versus 30 year versus 15 year? And then the physician mortgage loan space, like what's changed over the year? I know when we talked last, you had to put money down on some of these, like the banks got a little squirrely during COVID and we're like, ah, we're not doing 0% anymore, right? Right, right, right. So right now that's gone. We're back to 100% financing. And this varies from bank to bank. Just a little bit of color. Conventional loans are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans. So the guidelines, the interest rates, et cetera, come from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. The VA, it comes from the VA. FHA comes from the Federal Housing Administration. But these doctor loans are what we call in the industry portfolio loans. So we hold the money on our portfolio. Um, it's our money. And the bank. The bank, yes. So we service it, but we also hold the money. On a conventional loan, the money goes to Fannie Mae in the end. The government. Even, even though it's serviced, you know, by the bank. So because of that, there is more wiggle room in guidelines and in price. So the cool thing right now, historically, doctor loans at 100% financing used to have a slightly higher interest rate than a conventional loan, right? But when you put them side by side, you're doing a 5% down conventional loan, you're doing a 100% doctor loan, you have to pay PMI with a conventional loan, you don't with the doctor loan. So even if the rate was a little bit higher, it still made sense to do. But now, since interest rates have gone up, the doctor loans have stayed lower. So my rates for doctor are about a percent lower than conventional loans. So I'm like in the low sixes or high fives 
So um, it's like put less down and lower interest rate. Yeah. Because <laughs> people ask me all the time, they're like, well, what's the downside? And I'm like, there isn't one now. You know, there used to, used be. to be. Yeah, there used to be. Like I could point to that. But now there's nothing. Like there, there's no mm-hmm. downside. If you can do a hundred percent loan at a percent lower interest rate, like tell me where the downside yeah. is, you know. But we'll do like a hundred percent financing up to a million. And then 5% down to 1.5 and then 10% down to 2 million. And then the other cool thing about the doctor loan is you can close prior to your start date. So you can close up to 90 days prior to the contracted start date and still go off of the income for the future doc. So normally you have to provide like pay stubs or proof of income essentially and with a typical loan, a conventional loan. The typical loan, they're going to want your like, there are some variations to this, but in a typical loan, you usually have to provide your first pay stub. So you got to start your job. Yeah. Any other big changes that I didn't realize that about the rates being have swung the other direction. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the biggest one. And I have that conversation with clients every single day because mm-hmm. they call me and they're like, what? Like I was just got a quote for a conventional loan. It was 7%. <laughs> like, yep. Our arms, now. our arms low. Are arms about the same rate as 15? Arms are, you know, they're lower than fixed rates. The spread isn't as much as it was in the past. Yeah. Just because they don't want to, you know, but an arm right now really isn't a terrible decision Yeah, because most people are probably going to refinance pretty soon anyway. Experts are predicting that rate probably, this is for conventional loans, go down to like fives by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if that happens, then, you know, there might be a lot of people that refinance. Yeah. Um, Arms are fixed for just for those that, that aren't clear, like fixed for a certain period of time and then they become variable interest rates. So yeah, a lot of times the interest rates a little lower than fixed rate options. Right. But then, you know, then they the trade off is it goes yeah. variable. So if rates right. go higher, I mean, at right. the end of the day, we don't know for sure what rates, interest rates are going to do in the future. Right. We have no idea. We like, like to act like we do and make. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm like, watching I the market. I'm watching the market all day, every day. And I, you know, listen to updates all the time. And I still like, nobody knows, you yeah. know, like, and everybody's been predicting that there will be a, you know, a housing like for the past four years, it's been like, we're at a bubble. We're about to recessions a coming. Yeah. Recessions coming. Recession actually might be here right now i mean it could be happening but yeah. like yeah could not be too i mean right. it's right probably, you know. yeah but as far as the housing bubble is concerned the way inventory is which is you know the issue you brought up that you know the keeps the values from going down that's also the thing that's going to prevent housing bubble mm-hmm. because there's no chance that we you know we decline when we have this inventory issue because the, those numbers are going to keep they're, and they've shown that they've slowed down, you know, appreciation has, but it is, you know, still increasing. There's no bubble or drastic drop like everybody's been. Yeah. Can you have two physician loans through Truist? Not through Truist. So through the Truist guideline is you can have one at a time. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there is an exception where if you have over 20%, like let's say you bought one when you're a resident. And then it's gone up a bunch. If you have 20% equity, then you can get a second one as an exception, as long as you can qualify and afford both of them. 
but like crossover between banks, there's no, no rule that says you can't have more than one. And there's also no rule that says you can't have multiple over your, you know, your lifetime. Like a lot of people think that you can only get one and that's not true. You're right. 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 Yeah. I work with a lot of people that have got many over the years. So we got a question from anonymous attendee and it's funny that we just, we're talking about this is right after we're talking about predicting future rates, they would like to, if we could give our best estimate, hand wave about the chances we will get back to the old days of 10 plus percent interest rates. I don't think so. Impossible. (laughs) Not impossible. No, no, never impossible because it's happened before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in case, so this person obviously knows about the old days. A lot of people don't even know about the old days. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of the people that call me, their only knowledge about interest rates is since 08, where it's been, you know, four or three, two percent, right? So everyone's like, six percent, that's awful. Like the majority of my career was, you know, like in the, was at six something percent, you know, like it's not like. Probably when you started, it was six to seven percent, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like right now we are not in an abnormal, you know, time. It's just, we have to figure out that the new normal. I wonder what would have to happen for it to get into the 10% range. I think if inflation, if the inflation numbers keep staying steady at the rate or maybe even going a little higher for whatever reason, and the Fed keeps raising their rates, that could drive rates higher. Yeah. Yeah. That's the scenario. I think. Yeah. We, if inflation doesn't get. Inflation is the thing, like the inflation yeah. is the key to all of it. So if what the Fed has been doing curbs inflation, it's not going to go to 10%. And also if we hit another recession, then rates are, they're going to have to pump money in the, the economy. It'll go down, way down. And we'll have lower rates. I don't think it's likely, but who knows, you know, like. Yeah, those always- are the two outcomes I think is like the overcorrection. They would, you know, the government intervention is driving a lot of this. So it's like either they overcorrect in terms of raising the rate too high, too fast, which puts us in a recession, which probably ends up in really low interest rates in the next few years. On the other hand, if they, the opposite happens, like they don't act, they don't realize how bad inflation really is and it's not changing it or it's continuing. And then they have to keep raising it. And then that's the scenario where the 10% plus rates happen. Yeah. And I mean, I think those are both possibilities. I think they're like, low on both ends potentially i think Um, we're much closer to the fed pushing us into a recession i would agree but it's hard to say i've made so many predictions that have been wrong over the years (laughs) i'm not a great fortune teller so anyway okay well so let's get into the home purchasing decision so i'd love to talk a little bit about like the buy versus rent situation yeah and then we could talk about the how much you can afford scenario as well because that's both of these, I think, have changed quite a bit over time. Yeah. Um, so buy versus rent. I think that renting kind of gets a bad rap and it's underappreciated. And I think in certain circumstances, maybe we could paint the picture of like a scenario where we would both agree that it's like a, I mean, like the classic rent scenario is like, you have no idea what your future looks like lots of uncertainty, new area, 
like finances or you're unsure about things like yeah yeah you don't know what maybe you're new into practice in a new area of the country and you don't have you're especially if maybe you're single and you don't have a family there right right and you've never lived in the city before and and you don't have money for a down payment so there's all this like risk potential if you were to buy and because with so renting is nice in the way that it is very very flexible like low commitment low maintenance like you don't have to even i mean if you have a good deal you don't even have to like fix things like right i mean maybe you have to plunge a toilet but like you don't have to (laughs) you don't have to like fix the broken stuff and those were the days man i mean there's a lot of appeal to renting so listen i'm like in my job i'm supposed to say that renting is evil you know renting is the worst thing you could do ever in your life but you know i i mean obviously i think that there is huge benefit like if you compare the two there's a huge benefit to owning but depending upon the situation like you said if you aren't ready to buy don't you know like when you doubt, yeah. it's not something that you should do just because you think you should you know mm-hmm. if you if you're not entrenched in a city and or you're young and you know you all the things you said you know those are all legitimate reasons to let rent and i think young people should rent you know mm-hmm. before they buy because there's a growing up to do it's a, it's the same thing with everything you got to you you can't just throw yourself into owning a house. There's a lot to deal with. Right, right. We had a question I I overlooked here. Backtracking to the primary residence and conventional loan and physician loan and that sort of thing. And the question is, can I still get a physician loan for a new primary residence while keeping the current property and loan as a rental property? Yes. So if the loan is with Truist, our rule would be you have to have at least 20% equity on that property to get another one through us, okay? If it's with somebody else or with us during that, under those circumstances, you just need to be able to qualify for both. And a lot of people think that just the fact that they're planning on renting it out will be able to count rental income to offset that mortgage, and that's not the case. If I'm going to count rental income, you need to have a history of having rentals and you know, show it on your tax returns and that sort of thing. So as long as you qualify, like for instance, if you're a resident and you bought a house for 200 grand and you're about to start your attending job and you want to level up, buy a $500,000 house and you want to keep that one as a rental and you're making, you know, good money and your debt to income ratio is low, no problem. Yeah. you Can, definitely- can you buy a rental property with a physician loan? No, Can there might buy, be a bank. There might be a bank out there that does them. I, I don't know. What happens when you buy a primary residence as under a physician loan, and then it magically becomes a rental property within a month or two? That's fraud, <laughs> bro. That's fraud. Yeah, that's fraud. Like if they get caught, I mean, like if you're telling the truth and it's your primary residence, that's kind of what I'm like. If you've lived there a year and then it becomes a rental house, that's fine. Like things change. Like if you if you bought the house, you legitimately moved in, and then a year later you got relocated or got a job at a different city and needed to, you know, move. Like that's mm. a like life happens. You can't force somebody to live in a house. But 
if they're lying, then that's a completely different. Yeah. So tell the truth always for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's yeah, for sure. Isn't there something in the contracts that says like, it needs to be your primary residence indefinitely? I don't know. I, I don't know how up. the mortgage reads. I mean, the main thing that, that they require on primary residences is you're supposed to move in within 60 days. Okay. So, so that, that is to give you time to do renovations or whatever, but they don't want you like moving in next year, you know? Yeah. So renting has its benefits, but I am like all that being said about renting, I think, you know, the lean for most people listening is that eventually you should buy. And, you know, once you, it's kind of like when you're getting settled, once you're settled is the time to buy. And because yeah. long periods of time, it's just a lot lower cost and it's your home and you get to own it and you get to make it your own. And you can start to build some wealth in it. And I mean, like longer term for sure, buying is the ideal way to go. You just have to be, I've seen some sticky situations happen with buying a little too soon. Yeah. Typically is with a physician income, you can meander, manage through those sticky situations. But I think a better question maybe is, so like, let's say you've kind of gotten to that point of like, it's time to buy, or maybe you're upgrading to an, a nicer home. I'd love it if we could kind of explore like, what's the right amount to be budgeting for on a house? Maybe we could start with like the bank's cap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, real quick, I'll just go back to the rent person thing. So right now, a lot of people are saying, Hey, I'm going to rent until, uh, you know, rates go down or, or prices yeah. go down. The bad part about that is rent is also going up, right? So if you're continually paying higher and higher amounts of rent, even if you could have, you know, even if the interest rates and stuff are higher right now, if you were to buy something right now, you can always refinance, right? Like the average person only keeps a mortgage for five years. So, so there's a great chance that you're going to refinance out of that higher rate and be in a much better situation than if you would have rented for a certain amount of time. I think with renting too, like there's some other caveats that are important. Got it. Some other important things about the rent decision. I've seen some really strange situations lately, the past few years where the rent rates are strangely low for the price of the house. I think it's especially common in like these high inflation or where property values have appreciated really fast. I think the rent rates have just not kept pace quite as fast and like or historically like rent rates take longer to inflate than real estate prices, but you're starting to see rent rates go up now. And then the other weird thing with renting is like some of these areas like that have really high property tax rates like Illinois, I think is the worst as far as property tax rates that I've ever seen. Maybe Texas has some bad areas. New Jersey is a bad state for property tax rates. That can like skew the equation a little bit, like making buying less appealing potentially. Sure. Now in theory, like they're going to just pass that cost right on through when you rent. Right. But it's worth looking at all that stuff too. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's the most I can get a loan for if if I so, want to, so when somebody asked me that question, like, because they always want to know, like, what is my max? Like, tell is me. Is that the my... first question you don't like it? Not the first, but like when people are getting pre-approved, that's what they want to know. They want to know what's the max I can qualify for. 
I mean, not everybody, like some people are budget conscious. They better not be our clients. Just kidding. <laughs> no, not your clients. Your clients never say. But when they ask, when they ask that question, my mine is, well, you know, what's more important is what you're comfortable paying, you know? Mm. And that's different for everybody. Like it's important that you are you know enough about your finances to know what that number is. And I'm not the one, I'm not the one that's gonna tell you what that mm. number is. I can, like I can find out what your max amount is, but that's doing you no favors if I'm trying to get you to do something that might not be in your best interest or might cause stress, you know, mm. later on in your life. And doctors have enough stress. They don't need more because of their mortgage. Yeah. Well, let's so, just for funsies, what's the max? So the maximum, like if I'm making 300,000, I have no debt, 300,000, no debt, no outsiding because they have to take into consideration your student loans and other debt payments. But like to simplify things, let's just assume I have no debt. I mean, you're, uh, you're, you're the sky's the limit, Daniel. Like 300,000 with no debt, you could pretty much choose. The way that the bank looks at it is we... I mean, could I get a $2 million house? Yeah, probably. If with have, a $300,000 income? Yeah, yeah, if you have no debt, probably. The max, maximum income that you need is, or the debt to income ratio is 43%. Mm -hmm. So that's the max. So yeah. if, you, if you take whatever your monthly income is times 0.43, that'll tell you like the maximum you could pay per month. But that also includes debt because there there's usually no doctor that has no debt you know so you got to factor in car loans you got to factor mm -hmm. in credit cards you got to factor in you know anything you have a monthly payment on is going to subtract from that yeah the problem with that situation i'm just thinking about the numbers in my head if i'm making three hundred thousand and take home pay and paying for that kind of house i imagine like if you, that had a $2 million house, like the mortgage payment itself is not going to cost this, but like, I think that all in cost is going to be in like the 10,000 a month, maybe range roughly, yeah. maybe, maybe 10 to 14,000 a month range, depending on like what interest rate we use and what tax rates we use and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that like 10 to 14,000 a month, $2 million house, that's probably pushing like leaving like 4,000 a month maybe three to 7,000 a month after the house. So in other words, you have three to 7,000 a month to spend on everything else, including right. saving for your future. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I but mean, I, you can make do like you could probably afford it. And I think that's my point in bringing this up is I think that's what the bank is going to look at. They want to make sure you're able to make the payment. And they don't have the time to go through your financial situation, or that's not their job really to go through your financial situation. Yeah. You're just looking at what you're going to be able to afford, you know, assuming that's all you have. And that's really, that's what house poor is, I think, in my definition. Yeah, is for sure. And, and it might not be 2 million. It might be like 1.5 or something like that. A lot. Yeah, it's a lot, and, but it doesn't need, you don't need that. You know, I. You may want that. You may want that. I mean, and there's high cost living areas and that kind of thing. But I can't tell people, you know, it has to be their decision. I mean, I can, mm -hmm. I can, you know, say that all I want, but 
I still have people that are like, no, I want I want as much as you can. You're give not me. the boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's what's also interesting to me about the how much can you afford question is a lot of people have like rules of thumb they talk about and that's I mean, it's okay to have a rule of thumb. It can be good in some cases, but like they haven't really changed their rules of thumb as like some of these huge things, like the interest rates, for example have a massive effect on what you can afford, but like, we're not really taking that into consideration necessarily. Or, I mean, the question is, are you taking that into consideration if you're considering buying the fact that it's a massively different cost breakdown? I was looking at the numbers for the $2 million house earlier. And if it's like, if I had a 10,000 a month budget for all in-house costs, it would at a 3% interest rate, I could afford the $2 million house. At ten thousand a month all in, but if it was seven percent, it'd have to be one point three million. Right, right. So it's like seven hundred thousand dollar massive di- just because the rate went up. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you can't you can't look at it from a cost point of view. You have to look at it from a monthly, not like a not a purchase price point of view. You have to look at it for from a monthly cost point of view, mm-hmm. and then figure out. I mean, that's why I asked that question. What is what is your number? And then I can work backwards and figure out where they should be. You know, depending upon what the interest rate is, that could be different, but you need to look at it from a monthly payment point of view, not a purchase price point of view. Right. Um, You know what your monthly payment is, then you can look at the purchase prices and see what's in that, you know, what's in that range and if those will suit your needs or not. Yeah. I think what it comes down to is having a financial plan, which is what we do every day. That's like our day job in our world is helping people have a financial plan. Basically all a financial plan is, is like a plan for your money. So like how much is coming in, where's it going? What's most important to you? So, you know, what happens with the house decision is a lot of times people are like, I want to travel. Family's important. I want to retire soon. ASAP preferably. And I want the $2 million house. <laughs> yeah. You it's like, no, all. you can't do all that. So no. then it's like, okay, well, let's prioritize stuff. And it's like, okay, family's most important, then traveling, then maybe retiring at a reasonable age. And then maybe we find out that the house is maybe fourth on the list or something. So it's like what a lot of times the missing exercise people fail to do when they don't have a financial plan is often they don't think through it like that. They get emotionally tied up in the decision of the house and they forget those really important other priorities and they don't like carve that money out. That's why they say save first, spend the rest. Right. It's like, you got to like carve out the long-term savings. Yeah. You got to carve yeah. out the money to travel. You got to carve out all that like important stuff first and then see what's like left over after like eating and lifestyle and that kind of thing. And that's how you back into the house number. That's like the ideal way to do it is you kind of back in to the house. Yes. Unless there's, I mean, I'm sure there's some people maybe listening that are like, actually, the house is absolute most important to me. Like, and that's all I care about. Yeah. If that's the case, then that's a different, you know, story for sure. In that case, it's like, no, Rich, like, show me the max. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, everybody has different priorities, but the, what you said was knowing your financial plan. Like, that's the whole thing. Because that, that way you can set your priorities and figure out what is most important. But if you don't know your numbers, if you don't know... Like, I mean, you need to know what everything is going to cost utilities, you know, Mm -hmm. 
the internet cable, like you need to know what that groceries, you need to know what those, that whole package is going to be like. And I will say this, like any of the people that come to me from you, they always have a plan. And, yeah. and a lot of times they were like, Hey, I want my, I want Daniel or my financial planner to look at my stuff. You know, I want them to give me, you know, their opinion. And right. to me, like some mortgage guys don't like it when there's a financial planner dictating things, but I love it, man. Like, because I, they're coming into it knowing, you know, what they should know and with somebody who has their best interests at heart. Yeah. So if you work with us and we don't, and you don't feel confident in those numbers, just let us know and we can help you crunch those numbers, especially if you're approaching a decision around this. And if you're a DIYer and you don't have a plan, this is just like a reminder or incentive, I guess. Like you want to for sure do that before you, I guess really the time to do it is to have it, have a plan before you set your budget because, you know, that's the hard question. It's like, how much are you going to spend? And you definitely don't want to start looking. The temptation is to look at houses before you yes. have a budget. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's a problem. And, and I, that, get, I get that all the time where people fall in love with a house and then I've already made an offer and it was accepted, oh. you know, and then I get, then I get the application. I'm like, you don't qualify for that. Like, uh, <laughs> and you always will. I mean, if you look at a million dollar house versus $2 million, I mean, the nicer, the more expensive the house, it's nicer. Like you're going to yes, like it. Yes. <laughs> you're going to want that house. Yeah. It's not, it's not, but you know, just having that plan too, it kind of keeps your head level when you're getting into that emotional decision-making. Yeah, so other than that, like having a plan is important, but let's say you got the budget and you're getting into the decision-making phase. What I know credit's important in terms of like getting the best deal. What is the idea? What credit score do you have to have to get like the best terms and everything? So usually, and this will vary from bank to bank too, but usually 740 is the magic number. Like we will get mm -hmm. the best interest rate if you have over 740. Yeah. Uh, there are different tiers in our program. Like if you have, you need a 720 to be able to do a hundred percent financing. If you're between 700 and 699, you got to do 5% down. If you're between 680 and 699, you're 10% down. Does the rate go up? Yeah. Yeah. The rate goes up, but there's also, it's kind of offset because there's a difference in the rate if you put money down. Oh, okay. So 100% financing, like for instance, today it was like 6%. 5% down is a 10th off of that. And then 10% down is a 10th off of that. Yeah. We got a question. I think Hue, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, says no extra cookie for credit above 800. No. Congrats on credit above 800. By I the mean, way. that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. The other thing I would like to point out about credit is people don't realize a lot of times that what you see at home is not what we see. So when you're pulling your credit, you, it's credit karma or any of those credit bureaus, you have a, you know, a credit monitoring plan with your bank, those numbers are going to be lower than what I see. And the reason for that is every, there are so many different scoring models. So what you're looking at at home is like the credit card model, but there's also a car loan model and a mortgage model and, and, you know, unsecured loan model. So they all have different 
ways they look at scores. And you can't really find the mortgage model at home. So the majority of the scores that people see at home are vastly different than what I see. One like tip that I'll share is myfico.com has, if you Google myfico.com mortgage scoring model, you can find a way to, to get those scores that the bank will see, the mortgage bank. Just a word of warning. I think they make you sign up for like a 30 day, you know, 30 day free, free trial. Yeah. And then they'll charge you if you don't cancel it. So make sure you cancel it. But, Put it on your calendar. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of times I'll pull somebody's credit and they'll be like, oh my God, this is way, way lower than what I saw. And then I'll explain it to them and tell them what they need to do to get their scores up and have them go look at their mortgage scores on my FICO before they come back to me so that I'm not, you know, repulling credit too mm. much. How often do you see physicians with below the 740? I guess that's the third. I mean, a lot. It's probably less than the rest of the population, in my opinion. Like, I don't know. But I, especially residents or younger doctors who don't haven't established a lot of credit yet, that's the thing that I see the most is like doctors coming right out of medical school, going into residency. They'll have nothing in their name because mom and dad, you know, paid for everything. Mm. And, that's something that's advice that I would give is just make sure that you have three trade lines, three accounts, like credit cards, car loans, unsecured loans, get some debt. We want to see three of those. And I'm not saying like get some debt and charge it all the way up and be in the hole. Be you responsible know, with the debt. Yeah. Use it for paying gas and pay it off, but establish your own credit so that you're not, because I have a lot of residents that come to me and they have no trade lines. They might have a good credit score, but I need to see that they have three trade lines like that they've been paying on for 12 months. If they don't, I can build non-traditional trade lines through like cell phone bill or utilities. But a lot of times those are in dad's or mom's name. Mm -hmm. So if I don't have any of that, then I got to say, hey, go work on it and come back later. So that's something that I would recommend is, you know, establishing credit early. Yeah, it's worth understanding understanding what your credit is. I think, you know, it sounds like the number is sometimes difficult to get like, and converting it between your score and that score yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But there's all, there's some easy things you can do to increase your credit. Like I have seen people have trouble with like the debt ratio. Like they say they just have one credit card and they use it for everything. And like the balance on it is like high, but they pay it off every month. But like, it looks like it's 90% utilized or something like that, that which hurts their credit score. But it's like kind of dumb that it does that, but that's yeah. just part of the formula thing. Right. But you can easily like either increase the credit limit or pay it off faster or whatever. Right, right. So what people don't realize is that the credit, the creditor reports to the credit bureau once a month. So mm -hmm. if American Express reports to the credit bureau on the 15th, because that's when they're you know, the payment is due. They usually report on the same day that the payment's due. And it's your balance is up there when they report it. You pay it off the next day. Well, it's not going to show that it's paid off for another 30 days. You know, it's going to show that it's way charged up, like you said. So it's best to keep those numbers below 30% of the limit. That's kind of the rule of thumb. When's the best time for people to be reaching out to like lenders? 
like during mm-hmm. a month in relation to the time that they're gonna buy, like 30 days before they buy 60 days before they buy or before they buy so a pre-approval a pre-approval is good for like 120 days so like your credit report is only good for 120 days but what i tell people is just come to me before you start looking before you start falling in love before you make an offer for sure before (laughs) yeah so you know it only takes us a couple days to do a pre-approval but if you fall in love with the house and you need it yesterday And then, you know, we got to put you to the top of the list and then, you know, maybe it's not an easy pre-approval and then it just turns into a, you know, fire drill. But yeah, I mean, really, whenever you're about to start looking in earnest, you know, that's when I get pre-approved, you know, just get pre-approved and then, then, then you're off to the races. So get your, have a financial plan, then talk to the lender, talk to Rich. How often do people like... How often are people shopping rates? Like, do you get that a lot with physicians? Yeah. Or are they normally just like, you're my guy? It's a little of both. You know, I have, I get a lot of referral business from, mm-hmm. you know, realtors and I'm a preferred lender for a couple of builders. Like usually when I get something from them, they're not shopping me, you know, but I get a lot of business from other sources where they're getting tons and tons of quotes. You know, yeah. Where they, you know, they read that they needed to get three quotes, and that's what they're going to do. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. One thing I would recommend when you're shopping, you know, for a mortgage, is that you find out two things. You find out what their interest rate is, of course. Like that's the first thing everyone knows that. But the second is what their lender fees are, because that can change immensely if somebody has way higher fees and that's why they have a lower rate like that's not comparing apples right so so lender fees are the the part of the closing cost that goes directly to the bank one of those is the origination fee so you may have heard the term points that's like one point is one percent origination fee and you really want to know that because that can add up quick, especially on your $2 million loan. So you want to know if they charge points. Typically in my quotes, I'm not charging any points. The only time I charge points are is if somebody wants to buy down the rate, pay to get a lower rate. And then the other lender fees are like what the bank charges on every loan. Like we have a processing fee is what we call it. Appraisal fee, credit report fee. Yeah, there's um, a bunch of them. Tax service fee. So and those they should the break ones, it down. Yeah. So those you are the ones you should be able to ask know. for it too. Like a lot of, we see it with a lot of people. They, the classic is they're like talking to three, they heard that you ought to talk to three lenders and they go to one and they're like, Hey, Bob, give me some pricing. And they're like 6% interest rate. And then that's all that the email says or whatever they yeah, communicate. Yeah. And then the other one's like 6% and a thousand closing in the email. And then the third one sends the full cost breakdown which is more aligned with what you're talking about. And then they, they send it to us and they're like, and maybe the full cost breakdown is like six and a half percent, which is higher than the other two. And they're like, well, I think I should go with the 6% interest rate because it's a lower rate. But the problem is like, we have no idea what the first two, like right. you have to have the full breakdown to know what you're even looking at. And I would not even go further with someone until I saw that full breakdown just took, yeah. I mean, that's good. Even if you're going to use one lender, it's just good practice to like, look at the full cost. Yeah. You, I mean, you should know what your costs are, but 
also with the full breakdown, you need to discern what the lender fees are from the rest of it, because the city and state taxes, the escrows, yeah. the title fees, those are going to wind up being exactly the same, no matter who you go with. Well, they should it, be. Well, they will be, they but will what, what the person estimates up front may not be, right? So I run into this a lot because I over-disclose. I want, you know, I want the person to go to closing and pay less than what they thought what they were. So when I put all of the fees on there the way they're supposed to be, and then the other guy doesn't, you know, like he like really lowballs all or forgets to put a title fee on there or something, even though my you know, let my lender costs are lower, his overall costs look lower, mm. but they're not because in the end, those fees are going to be exactly the same, no matter what. The only fees that are going to change are going to be the lender fees. Yeah, that's confusing to look at. We've looked at them a lot, but this is all good stuff. I think we could go on and on. I know we're getting close to time. So I wanted to kind of start to wrap up and, and talk about some follow-up actions to think about. First of all, I've already thrown it out there. Like our team is always happy to help with financial planning, the financial planning aspect, which I think is important in establishing that plan. You know, it's, especially if you work with us, for sure, keep us in the loop. If you're not working with us, we're happy to do like a 30 minute call to talk about like pressing questions or look at like a loan breakdown for you if you want. Like we can do stuff like that in that 30 minute intro call, which is no cost. So make sure and, and, and look into that. Or if you're doing it yourself, like, you know, have that plan in place. And then Rich is a great resource. What's awesome about Rich is he's already said this himself, but I'll say it too, to reinforce that. Like he's very objective, even, I mean, of course he has incentive to recommend certain things to you, but like, he's a pretty objective guy. Like he's going to tell you if he thinks that you should, you know, be renting or if you're spending too much or whatnot. So he's a great resource to reach out to. Rich, can you throw out some like ways for people to get in touch with you and a little bit more about how to find you? Yeah, it's richard.richie, R-I-C-C-I, at truest.com. Yes, my name is Rich Richie. Uh, <laughs> I've heard Richie Rich uh, maybe once or twice in my <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> and then you're going to put my contact info in the yeah. description, I assume. That's my email address. My website is www.truest.com forward slash Richard.Richie. So there's kind of how you can, you know, get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, it's been fun. And I'm going to put, I'll throw in a link to this mortgage all-in calculator that we have. That's really helpful to kind of look at cost breakdowns as well. Any other resources or suggestions you can think of, Rich, that we didn't hit on? Yeah, no. I mean, I'll talk to a professional. Is my yeah. Opinion. And talk early and Rich is not aggressive either. Like he's not, that's partly why we, I mean, I like Rich as a friend, <laughs> but, um, you know, I professionally appreciate his non-aggressive approach. Like some right. of these lenders get hyper aggressive and I do not like that. I um, mean, so. I've, I've told you, you've sent me other, you know, another estimate and I, you know, I've told you their deal is better than mine, you know, yeah. like, and this is not bragging but i do enough business where i don't i don't need to scratch and crawl claw for it you know and i don't need to to coerce people into doing business with me yep. you know it's a luxury to have that. yeah it's good spot to be in yeah well it's been fun rich i appreciate you coming on and keep up the good work you too my friend you've been listening to finance for physicians to make sure that you never miss an episode subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player 
On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.